But what is the mission of the effect? You know, maybe that would be a good place to, to kind of start as we're sort of retooling and thinking about this. And really, when it comes right down to it, at least what we've evolved to, the mission of the effect is to help people with their second half of life journey. That's really what we, it comes down to. We are here to help people with their second half of life journey, and we do it through both guidance and participation because it's not like we've arrived here, me or anybody else on staff or in leadership. We're all in this journey together. But some of us are in a position to help guide others, introduce them to certain things. What are the tools that we use? What is the method that we use in order to work through a second half of life journey? And maybe before that, I should explain what a second half of life journey is, if you're not familiar with that term. You know, the first half of life is the part of life where we are working externally. We're trying to build external jobs and careers and families and, and, and platforms for ourselves. But everything is focused out there, as it needs to be. In your 20s and in your 30s, if you aren't building that platform, you're going to have a tough life going forward. And so that's a time where everything is focused outward. But it's also a time of real distraction. Because the deeper things, the things we were talking about earlier, about the unseen things in life, those tend to get papered over as we're focusing so much on the details of life, so much on the physical, material things in life. And then you hit your, either your mid-30s or your early 40s. Sometimes it's later. But that midlife crisis is really the, the, the switching point where we hit a crisis of meaning and purpose and we realize, okay, I've been working so hard at all of this stuff, but is that all there is? I've been working so hard on all this stuff, but is there anything more than what I can see and hear and taste and measure with my instruments? And the second half of life a journey is one that works and moves interiorly, where we start looking for meaning and purpose inside, where we start exploring the relationships that, that come out of that deeper place. Now, it doesn't have to be a chronological thing. You don't need to be in your 40s or 50s to be taking a second half of life journey. Often it does coincide. Often we just need enough time under our belts, enough experience, enough getting mugged by life uh, to realize that there has to be a different way to process things. But there are younger people, of course, that are here um, and, and are entering their second half of life. Pretty hard to do in your 20s, but 30s is certainly possible, even if it's a bit rare. So we are here to guide and help people identify, define, and take their second half of life interior journey. And it was funny, last week uh, I did a, a message and I called it walls. And I was talking about we have to take our walls down. And, um, you know, mental walls and, and material walls and all these other walls. Because as soon as you build a wall, first of all, a wall is a symbol of fear. And if you're behind the wall, then you fear what's on the other side. And you make enemies of the people on the other side and so on and so forth. I got the feedback later on that people thought I was talking about the border wall with Mexico. Now, you will never hear me going political from up here. I promise you that, that we are talking about an interior journey. I did say toward the end of the message, to defend myself, that this is just a metaphor. This is a metaphor. I said exactly that. You know, it doesn't mean you've got to go take your fences down around your house or the bars off your windows. Be prudent. But this is a metaphor. But it's, it's interesting how quickly we go there. We go back to the macro. We go back to the physical. We go back to these exterior things rather than stay here because it's more difficult to do the interior journey. It requires vulnerability. It requires risk. 
to do the interior journey, we can stay pretty well defended doing the first half of life, but not the second half of life. So how are we going to go about doing this? Well, the first thing that we do is we approach Jesus from a first century Hebrew point of view and from the Aramaic language, because that's going to be the closest that we're going to get to who he is. And when we do that, when we really look at Jesus from an Eastern point of view, we find a Jesus who is not concerned with the abstract. He's not concerned with theology. He's not even concerned with building a church. Those were the followers later on who layered those things over on top of his teaching and his message and his life story. But when you really look at what's going on, what you find is a man who is absolutely consumed with the daily practical way of living life that will bring those unseen parts of the world and and the universe into our consciousness. He, He is literally taking that second half of life journey, trying to bring all that to the fore. And the second thing we do and the way that we go about following Jesus as a first century Jew is through a contemplative way of living life. It's really two ways of saying the same thing. Jesus, when he looked at this way, is living life as a contemplative. What's a contemplative mean? A contemplative is approaching life through stillness, through silence, through solitude, in a nonverbal and non-rational way. Because the things of the Spirit can't be approached through logic, can't be approached through language. As soon as we do that, we limit God. We limit action of Spirit in our lives. And so to just let all that go and be completely present in the moment nonverbally is exactly what we see Jesus doing when we really look at his life from this point of view. So our mission is to aid the second half of life journey. The way we do it is through Jesus and his teachings understood from this point of view and also through a contemplative way. That necessitates us really having this seven-day-a-week footprint here in our facility because we, it's not just enough to have a Sunday morning or maybe a midweek study. It really is a day-by-day connection. How does this work? How do we move through this? What is it that we're trying to do? If you really look at what Jesus is doing, he's trying to get us to fundamentally transform. He calls it sometimes to convert, which means to transform. Not just follow the law, but actually become the law in a very new way. Some theologians and even sociologists call this a habitus. And I don't know if you've ever heard that word before. Habitus? You know? What it actually is, is a habit of being. It's way beyond just believing something. It's way beyond just having a mental assent to a belief system, a theology. It's actually going way deep into the attitudes of life. It's the way that you perceive the world, reality, life, how you react to it. It's a sum total of all your ingrained habits, all the skills that you've developed, and the ways that you go about living your day-to-day life. If we are contrasting the way we normally look at religious belief and an actual habitus, it would be like the difference between starting a diet. You start a diet because you want to lose weight, right? And so you avoid certain foods or you follow this diet, do this. Everything is focused on losing X amount of pounds in your life. As opposed to just 
completely changing your lifestyle, which includes the foods you eat, includes exercise, includes whatever it includes, but it becomes this way of living life that you just do naturally. You're not thinking about it as a task with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're not thinking about it as a means to an outcome. It's just the way that you live life. And this is the difference. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. If you are approaching your spirituality, if you are approaching your religion as a task with a beginning, a middle, and an end, as a means to get someplace that you want to go, then, as he would say, you have your reward in full. But if you can convert, if you can change and become like this little child, you can enter, and his word for habitus is kingdom. Kingdom is this habitus we're talking about. Kingdom is this way of living life that brings the unseen reality to the surface, that shows us all the connections between us and, and, and life and spirit, this way of living life that makes all that completely real, that convinces us deeply, is what Jesus calls kingdom. It's a quality of life. It's a way of living life. It's an attitude toward life. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually as we go. And Jesus is always trying to describe the kingdom, trying to get it across to people. What does this kingdom mean? It's so different than what you think. Even the first century Jews that he was talking to who had one idea of kingdom or to us 2,000 years later who have another idea of kingdom, it's never what you think. It's always something different. So he spends so much time trying to get people to understand what he means by kingdom. And the only way that he can describe it is by its effect, the effect that it has on people's lives. And that's what he uses. Image after image, story after story, trying to get the effect across of what it feels like, what it looks like, what it tastes like. To have made this shift in worldview, in perception, and moved into a different way of living life. Think about the Beatitudes right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of Matthew 5. Think about all the attributes that he talks about there. He says this person who lives in kingdom is poor in spirit. And of course that's an Aramaic idiom and we don't know what it means. We think it means something negative. But in Aramaic, meskina ruch means someone who is, how does, it, how does it go? Someone who is poor, even if they're rich, has an attitude of poverty, even if they're rich. We would say probably humble. We would say not domineering, not aggressive. Someone who is close to the ground. Someone who's poor in spirit. He says they are gentle. He says they are meek. He says they are merciful. He says they are mournful. Blessed are you who mourn. What? Blessed are you who are vulnerable enough to feel the pain of lost relationship. Vulnerability is another attribute. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not just those who break up fights, but those who labor day after day. It's an agrarian term. Just plowing the rows to make the greatest amount of healing and health and connection. These are the effects of kingdom that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Matthew 13, he gives seven parables about the kingdom there. The kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like that, the kingdom is like a sower with the seeds. You know, the the seeds fall on this ground and this ground and this ground. He's trying to get across that the kingdom can't be apprehended just all at once often. And it's not going to be apprehended the same by different people. 
The kingdom is like a mustard seed. He's talking about explosive growth. The kingdom is like leaven in a, in a, in a lump of flour. Leaven's the whole lump. He's talking about this, this viral sort of conversion and, and that it's, it goes into every corner of your being when it's there. The kingdom is like a treasure that is hidden in a field. And the person who finds it, he's so joyful, he runs out and sells everything he can he has in order to buy the field. He's talking about that exuberance and that joy. A pearl of great price. A dragnet. Over and over again, Jesus is trying to get across what it is like to make this switch because it's so difficult to talk about these things. It's so difficult to get across that this isn't a task for us to complete. It's an immersion that if we're willing to move into will take us someplace that we've never been before. And he's trying to get that across to us. So when you look at Jesus and you look at how he brings people on a journey toward kingdom, toward this switch, this change. I see four distinct phases, distinct areas in which he works. And this is the same thing that we're trying to do here at The Effect. We're trying to mirror that. The first thing that Jesus does is heal people. The next thing he does is he teaches them. The third thing he does for those who are ready is he mentors them. And then he sends them out into service. There's healing, there's teaching, there's mentoring, and there's serving. Or from the student's point of view, there's healing, there's learning, there's engaging, and there's serving. And we try to do all those here at The Effect. Because we're trying to take a look at Jesus, see how he works, see how he brings people into the presence of the Father, and see if we can do the same thing. So quickly this morning, I wanted to go and see if we can look and see how Jesus is doing this. Take a look. Let's just look at healing for a second. For First of all, for a Jew, healing was so critical because anything that was out of balance... Anything that created an inequity in your life meant that you were less than shalom. And shalom that we translate as peace is is only a small part of it. Shalom is the greatest amount of health and wealth and healing and relationship and, and prosperity that is possible. That's why the Jews still to this day use it as a greeting, both hello and goodbye, shalom, wishing you that level. Anything less than that is sin to a Jew. Anything less. That's why a sin and a debt to a Jew is exactly the same thing. That's why Matthew in the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts, and Luke in the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses. Exactly the same thing. As soon as you have a debt, you have an inequity. Two friends, two peers, two partners now are debtor and creditor, or victim and perpetrator. It's the same thing. But also, if you are sick, there's an inequity. Here's where your life should be. Here's where it is now. You know, if you're in poverty, if you're hungry, anything. Now, take a look at the way Jesus heals. Take a look at the type of healings that Jesus goes through. First of all, he's healing physical illnesses, isn't he? That's an obvious one. Physical illnesses are less than shalom. They take a person underneath. And to the Jewish mind, somebody must have sinned that that happened, right? And so they have this one-to-one connection between those two. Exorcisms. He casts out demons. Well, in our parlance, and maybe in theirs, not to take anything away from the absolute miracles of Jesus, but what about 
mental imbalances, inequities? What about emotional imbalances? What about psychological imbalances that present in all sorts of ways in our lives? Jesus is bringing that back into balance again. Leprosy and any skin disease meant that you had to stay outside of the city gates, that you could no longer be in community. That's a social imbalance as well as a physical illness. Jesus is bringing people back into community, readjusting, bringing equilibrium. Paralysis, of course, a physical illness, but it also has to do with liberation. Jesus is liberating these people who can't move to be able to move again, literally setting the the prisoners free in that respect. The blind and the deaf, healing them, giving them new perception, giving them new ways of seeing and hearing so that they can move into new vistas, move into new possibilities, raising the dead, rebirth, feeding the multitudes. Notice he always feeds the multitudes before (laughs) he tries to teach them. But this hunger, this imbalance, he's restoring. And even financial. There's a a little-known story about Jesus uh, being asked if they're going to pay the temple tax. And uh, his thought is that they really don't need to. But so that they don't cause any problems, he sends one of his followers down to to drop a line in the water. And the first fish he takes out, open up its mouth, and there was the, the coin to pay the temple tax. So he's even... Leveling out financial imbalances as well. Take a look at John 5. That's in the... I don't know. Are you, are you getting stuff up on the uh, screens? These, anyway? Oh, look at that. It's working again. Okay. So John 5, starting at verse 2, or it's in your, in your handouts. This is a, a famous healing story of Jesus. Now there in Jerusalem is the Sheep Gate, and there's a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. The the tradition was that an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the waters, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now there was a man there who had been ill for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, here's the great question. Do you wish to get well? Well, duh, right? What are you asking me, Lord? But listen to the answer. This is where it gets so interesting. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. And of course, this was on the Sabbath and starts a whole Sabbath controversy. But here's where we, I, I want to take you with it for, for this particular discussion. Do you wish to get well? Now, the word there for wish could be just as easily and maybe better translated, are you willing to get well? Because the word there is sebiana. And we've talked about this over and over that the word for will, when we think of God's will, is God sebiana. And sebiana doesn't mean will the way we think of will as a legal instrument. What it means is desire, delight, deepest purpose. It's that which, I mean, we're getting back to habitus again, aren't we? It's God's habitus. It's his deepest purpose. It what gives him pleasure, drive, delight. It's all of that. That's what God's will really is. What is Jesus asking this man? Is it your desire, delight, 
deepest purpose, to be well, to be other than where and what you are right now? That's a huge question. And take a look. There is so much imbalance in this man. 38 years he's been in this condition. 38 years lying around the pool at Bethsaida. Obviously he has a physical impairment, but we aren't even told what it is. We don't know what it is, but obviously it keeps him from, it incapacitates him. You know, he can't move around or he can't move around very quickly. And he has no one to put him in the pool. Remember the guys who lowered their friend down through the roof for Jesus to be able to to heal him? That guy was connected. He had friends. He had community. This one has nothing. Not only is he physically impaired, he's socially impaired. He's isolated. He doesn't have anyone in his life. And not only that, he's got a pretty good victim mentality going here, doesn't he? And not only that, kind of an entitlement mentality going, doesn't he? Hey, man, I got no one to put me in the pool and can't blame me. It's not my fault. There's all sorts of things going on. All of that imbalance. Jesus heals, brings into balance. The man does pick up his pallet and walk. And we can only imagine what happens with the rest of his life. Hopefully that was the jump start to everything that fixed all those other imbalances. Not just the obvious one as we read off the top layer of this very rich passage. Are you willing? Is it your deepest desire and purpose to be in balance? To start exhibiting shalom in your life? But here's Jesus healing before he teaches. He doesn't tell the man anything about kingdom or anything about what he's about. He brings him into balance. He helps him get into balance. Think about it. If you're going to preach the gospel to a starving person, what do you got to do? Obviously, you got to feed them first. I worked for about 36 years for a nonprofit. We were working for children's issues in Mexico. And our main program was what we called Food for Kids, but we provided breakfast for, for children. They got to eat breakfast that they wouldn't have normally got before they went to school. Because we knew that unless they were fed, unless their bellies were full, they weren't going to be able to learn. They weren't going to be able to focus and do what they needed to do to have a chance to have the education, the wherewithal, to be able then to break out of their cycle of poverty. There are so many people here at The Effect, there are so many people that we know, that their lives are so out of balance, so out of kilter, so unfocused, whether it's financially, whether it's relationally, whether it's maritally, whether it's with their children, whether it's because of drugs and alcohol, finances, whatever it happens to be, That the noise is so great that they're not going to be able to take any further steps until some of that is cleared up. And so that's also what we want to do here more and more. We help people one-on-one. We want to have programs in addition to those that help people to get the help that they need for simple life skills sometimes. To be able to get enough of a foundation. We talk about just 51%. You just need to get to that 51%. You don't get perfect. Just get to 51%. More often than not. You're in a balanced place. Now we have the foundation to be able to move to that next level. And what is that next level? Well, it's the teaching or the learning. There's many stories, of course, of Jesus' teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, is one of them. He's sitting at the temple is another one. But take a look at this one at Luke 5. I love this one. 
Starting right at verse 1. Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So he gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching people from the boat. Okay, can you see that in your mind's eye? He's in this small fishing boat. He sits down because that was the way of the Jews. They sat to teach. They stood to pray. He sits down. That signals the people to know that the teaching is coming. But he's out away from the shore, and they're all along the shoreline. There's a symbolic distance between Jesus and the people. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the Mount. Here is the people laid out before him. There's a distance between, even a hierarchy maybe, between him and them. I always love that scene in the Monty Python movie. What was it, Search for the Holy Grail? That's the scene of the, I don't know if you guys know this. Last time I tried to do a Monty Python illusion, it really went flat. But, um, <laughs> but they show, they show the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaching. And the guys in the back, they're like, what? What did he say? And they're getting it all wrong. He said, blessed are the what? It was, it was hilarious. He had to be there, I guess. But there's this, this, this implied distance between Jesus and the people. He's in the boat. They're not. And this is the thing about learning. This is the thing about teaching. It can be done at a distance. We have distance learning now. You don't even have to be in the classroom anymore. You can just go online, right? There can be a safe distance between the teacher and the student, a safe distance between the student and the material that they're learning, even though they're learning it, even though they're taking it in, memorizing it, even though they may be agreeing with it. It can be passive. It can be inactive. It can be risk-free, which is the biggest piece of it, right? We can do this from a distance. We can do this safely. We can learn all this stuff and agree with it and say how wonderful it is. But if we haven't then engaged with it, if we haven't risked something in the streets of our lives, then nothing changes, nothing happens. And we see this over and over with teaching, with talk therapy and counseling, with, with treatment and rehab, if the only thing that happens is you gain some information, nothing changes in your life. And so Jesus is driving people now to the next phase. Because even though the learning is important to set that paradigm, to get that new vision, what do you do then? Well, Jesus can sense when the student is ready. When the student is ready to engage with this new thing that they're being taught, Jesus calls them. In that story we just read. Right after that, he takes Peter more deeply out into the water and he fishes with him. And he calls Peter to follow him and Andrew and James and John. And the great story of Levi being called from his tax booth you know, at the crossroads of the street. Hey, come follow me. And these are all the ones that said yes. But he sensed when they were ready, when they were ready to engage, when they were ready to really put their money where their mouth was, when they had learned something and now they can engage with it. And the scripture also gives us stories of people that Jesus called who didn't say yes. Remember the rich young ruler? Father, what must I do to obtain eternal life? I'll sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Well, I'm not quite ready to do that. Hey, come follow me. Okay, I, I'll do that, but can I you know, bury my mother and father first? Which seems like a reasonable request to us, because what is that going to take? You know, A couple of days? But in that culture, it could be that you lived with your mother and father until they died and you buried them. This is someone who was not yet ready. And Jesus' reply is, let the dead bury the dead. But you, come follow me. Not that you're irresponsible towards your family and towards your dependents, but it's an interior journey, remember? 
It's a metaphor. Sometimes. So Jesus is looking and pulling people into a deeper relationship with himself where they will eat and sleep and work and and walk with him and, and live as he lives to get under their fingers in a way no other learning can do. He mentors them. Take a look at Matthew 13, starting at verse 10. And the disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? This is right after he did the sower and the seeds parable. Right? This long extended parable about the seed going in all the different places, the four soils. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. Well, that sounds kind of cold. This is even colder. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So, weird idiomatic way of talking that sounds so... I don't even know what the word is. Just cold. A way of cutting people off and not even giving them the time of day. Often the, the, the Hebrew scriptures present this way. But what's going on here? Jesus says, for this inner circle, for these people who he has called and are following him, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to the other ones, it has not. It sounds passive. It sounds as if he just picked them and gave them stuff that he is not giving somebody else, and that's not fair. By definition, that's not Jesus. What's really going on? These men and women who chose to follow Jesus made themselves available to the mysteries of the kingdom in a way that the others had not. Even if they were still in learning mode, they had not gone into this other place where the mysteries became available to them. It was their volition. It was their choice. It was their engagement. It was their willingness to risk that made this available. And for those people who are willing to engage, willing to risk, willing to live their lives in a different way, more was going to come to them. It just becomes a flood. It's amazing. It's kind of a logarithmic experience. You know, you get a little bit at the beginning, and the deeper you go in, it just takes off. So for those who are willing to be available to truth, more will be given. But for those who stay on the outside, who play it safe, who live behind their walls... Eventually, any habitus that they had experienced is also going to atrophy and fall away. Do you see how a scripture like that can work when you look at it from this point of view? But it all has to do with moving from a passive learning to an active engagement, an active mentoring, a willingness to live your life. It's all about increasing. And here at The Effect... There's a natural progression for many of us, especially of those that are really in the second half of life journey. The beginning is Sunday morning. That's the first point of contact, right? It's the safest. You can sit out there kind of anonymously. It's a monologue. It only goes one way. We're not asking you to bring anything back, although you can if you want to. Um, I get that every once in a while. But then from there, if someone is really intrigued, what do they start doing? They start showing up on Tuesday night. They start showing up on Wednesday night to the various studies and workshops that we do. They come on Friday night for soaks. They start availing themselves of other opportunities. And then it doesn't stop there. Some people then, they start 
emailing questions to me, to Frank, to others. They start texting. They start phone calling. And then what do they do? Can we go out and get some coffee? Can we have lunch? You know? Can we sit down and talk about this? Can I set up a regular schedule of of counseling or coaching, spiritual direction, whatever you want to call it? That's the progression. And the switch takes place from the passive learning to the active engagement and mentoring. There is no other way that a habitus like kingdom can be established in our lives without that peace. That's it. Engaging then this contemplative way in their own lives when nobody's looking. It's what they do for themselves because it gives them the greatest pleasure. It has become their sabyana. It has become their deepest delight and desire and purpose to begin to live this way. And then what does Jesus do at that point? Take a look at Mark 6, starting at verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. That's okay. Wear the sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and they preached that men should repent. So there's some more strange-sounding, idiomatic Hebrew instructions there that we don't quite understand. But look what he's doing. He realizes that the student is now ready to become the teacher. The student is now ready to become the servant. The student is now ready to go out, two by two, still in community, so important to catch these details. Still in community, to go out, still with accountability, to go out and see how you can help, how they can help. And then there's these weird instructions. What's he talking about here? Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, wear sandals, any place that doesn't receive you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. He's basically telling them to go out unprepared. He's basically telling them to be themselves. Don't try to be anything else. Don't try to be the teacher. Don't make this such a big formal thing where you need all of this accoutrement because you know what has happened? You have become the message yourself. Who you are is the message. Not some factoid that you bring. Not even the healing that you may perform. You are the message. You don't need anything else for the journey. You need your sandals because you're going to be walking and you're going to be working hard. But guess what? At the same time that you're walking and working hard, you are not responsible for the outcome. You have no control over what they are going to do with your message, with your person. You have no control whether they are going to accept it or not. And when they don't, not if, when they don't, you move on. Not in a condescending way, not in a resentful way, but you keep going. You don't let that daunt you. You don't let that dim your enthusiasm for what you're doing because you realize the love that the Father has for you is the same love that you need to show someone that you're serving. And that love is to set the beloved completely free. There is no coercion. There is no control. The relationship is completely free. 
they are free to reject you, free to reject me, free to reject my Father. That's the way it has to be. He's showing them how to serve. There's so much to be said for informal service. Not these things where we go to some far continent to to do a specific task, but just because of the habitus that we've entered, the attitude for life that we have, we can't help but being moved by the person who stands right in front of us, right here and right now, to do whatever we can. We don't have to seek those service opportunities out. We can do that. That's fine. But we don't have to. We have become a person who is just willing to be present enough to see what needs to be done. This is a whole sea change. You know? And here at The Effect, we have people who have gone through that progression I was telling you about, and they're now starting to teach classes and teach workshops here. They're sponsoring people. They're, they're taking phone calls and going to get coffee and have lunch with, with other people. And you see the whole process coming full circle, coming right back to where we started. And the circuit is closed. This is the beauty. This is where Jesus is taking us. This is the shape of the journey. From healing, just getting to a basic place of, of, of enough balance that we can think straight, that we can take a breath. Learning a new paradigm. Let the blind see and the deaf hear. A new way of looking at life. Engaging that way of life. Really risking something in the engagement. And learning how to love without control and coercion. Learning how to then serve without control and coercion. Because the only time that we as human beings will finally feel fulfilled, happy, having some sort of meaning and purpose, is when we are loving as God loves us. That's how we're wired. That's what this is all about. We are loved in this free way. How did Jesus said, freely you have received, now freely give. Because once in the free giving, you finally understand how freely you have received. You finally understand that it's actually possible because you've seen that kind of love leave yourself in the direction of someone else. To risk being vulnerable, allowing the beloved all the freedom that they need to reject us. Daring to love like this creates this breathless sort of uh, exhilarating, alive feeling to life. It's like riding the roller coaster. It scares you just enough, right? Once you know that God loves you the way he does, the scariness of loving as he does becomes doable. It becomes semyana. It becomes your habitus, the way that you live and you wouldn't have it any other way. This is the effect of kingdom. This is the effect that Jesus is describing over and over again. This is the effect that we want in our lives. And this is the only way. Jesus is the only way to the Father. The only way to truth and life. And we have a choice. Do we follow or not? Are we ready or not? You're all here. You're all saying yes. Let's go. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, just grateful. Just want to get on to the, the next and the next and the next without losing what we're doing right here and right now. But grant us that excitement. Grant us that sense of something wonderful 
that is not only right around the corner, but is already here at the same time. That this moment is already perfect. But what about the next moment? How great is that one going to be? Which will also be perfect. And the one after that. And the one after that. Help us to learn to live with that kind of expectation and yet complete presence at the same time. That's kingdom. As we start to understand more and more, help us, draw us. We give you permission to take us as deep as we can at any given moment. And thank you for everything. Thank you for everything that you've given us, every tool, every person in our lives, every teacher, every student, every sponsee. It all adds up to you. So thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.